Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 39. And this week, this week, well, we'll finish up the Old Testament. Yes, finally we're here. The light at the end of the tunnel is now as bright as the sun. I also think there's a bit of irony here, as we are in week number 39, finishing all 39 books of the Old Testament. I wish I planned that coincidence. You might actually think I knew what I was doing. (laughs) All right, so this week we'll cover Obadiah through Malachi, and I'm fairly certain that this will be the longest podcast to date. So buckle up, buttercup, and we're going to get started with the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest of all Old Testament books, but as small as it is, there is an important message within it. You know, we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Obadiah. The name uh, Obadiah shows up in several Old Testament scriptures, but there's no indication that those passages are a reference to this prophet who wrote this book. We also are unsure about when Obadiah gave his prophecy. Some say he was the earliest of all the prophets. Some say he wrote right after the exile. But the content of Obadiah concerns the sins of the nation of Edom, namely their pride and arrogance that they displayed against the nation of Israel. The Edomites were descendants of Esau and were a, quote, brother nation to the Israelites who descended from Esau's brother, Jacob. In fact, if you trace the line of Esau, it will take you right into the New Testament to the line of Herod. Yes, King Herod from the New Testament. You guys know him. And in the New Testament, Herod is called the king of the Jews. But then the real king of the Jews came along in the person of Jesus, who would have descended from the line of Jacob. Now, Edom as a nation symbolized all the nations that opposed God's plans and oppressed God's people. It was bad enough for a nation to attack the people of God, but for a blood relative to do so was far worse, bringing God's judgment on themselves. Looking ahead to the great period of the tribulation, Obadiah declared that Edom and the other nations would be severely judged, but God would preserve Israel, giving them the whole land promised to Abraham, which included the land occupied by the Edomites. The next book we'll look at is a familiar one to many of you. It's the book of Jonah. And Jonah was from the village of Gath-Hefer, a small town in the northern kingdom of Israel, just north of Nazareth. Jonah lived and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And the biggest theological point that Jonah makes is that God desired the salvation of Gentiles and extended his grace toward them. Although God had established a covenant relationship with Israel alone, he did not abandon the rest of mankind. Jonah's message was directed to the powerful nation of Assyria, with its capital city at Nineveh. We might call Jonah the first Jewish missionary. In chapter 1 of Jonah, we find that Jonah is reluctant to follow God's orders. He is told to go down to Nineveh because their wickedness has become so great that God must deal with them. But Jonah does the opposite. Uh, did he think he was going to escape God, by the way? Sometimes because our hindsight is twenty twenty, we give Jonah a hard time about his fears. One author puts Jonah's situation into contemporary terms. Suppose God called some Jew living during the Hitler regime to go to Berlin and prophesy publicly that God was going to destroy Nazi Germany unless the Germans repented. The possibility of the Germans repenting and God withholding judgment on them would have been totally repugnant to such a Jew. His racial patriotism would have conflicted with his fidelity to God, just as Jonah's did. But when he put it that way, sometimes we're a little hard on Jonah. Because Jonah goes in the wrong way, God sends a storm to get his attention, and Jonah knows exactly what God is doing. When you're going against God's will, sometimes you put others in harm's way. In this case, it was the sailors. But at Jonah's request, he's asked to be tossed overboard. Really? Why not just turn the ship around and head back to Joppa? It's because Jonah would rather die than obey God's call. Ironic, isn't it? Jonah runs the other direction to get away from the heathens, and yet the heathens on the boat realize that Jonah's God is the real deal. 
By the way, the ship was going to Tarshish, right? Well, Tarshish is in Spain. Could it be that the reason why Paul wanted to visit Spain was that there was already a presence of God there that needed some cultivating? Okay, maybe I'm stretching things a little bit, but I guess it could happen. God wasn't done with Jonah because in chapter 2, God prepared a fish to help Jonah get back in the right direction. The fish swallows Jonah, and Jonah stays inside the belly of the fish for three days. You know, Jesus makes a reference to Jonah in the New Testament about this, specifically as it relates to Jonah being in the fish for three days. After Jonah prays, uh, the fish spits him out on dry land, and God recommissions Jonah in chapter 3. And God gives to Jonah a second chance, revealing his grace and kindness to the prophet. When Jonah finally arrived at Nineveh, he preached God's message of judgment. Ironically, Jonah didn't need three days to proclaim the message to the city. He just needed one day. Here we see a compassionate God who gives the Ninevites 40 days to repent. And Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 7 through 8 shows how God dealt with the nations. He was a God of grace. Listen to what the text of Jeremiah says. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. You see, that's God's grace, not just on the Jewish people, but on the whole world. Now, in chapter 4, Jonah finds his worst fear being realized and expresses his, his displeasure to God for what has taken place. He is upset that God has been gracious and merciful to the repentant people of Nineveh. Jonah refused to heed God's initial call because he didn't want to see God's blessings shed on his enemies. You know, if, it's not clear if Jonah ever learned from this experience and became more like the Lord, but it is clear that the Lord is gracious, compassionate, full of loving kindness and delights in saving people. The book of Jonah ends with this question that is never answered. It's meant for anyone one who reads Jonah that might see God as compassionate and full of love. This question goes to show us that Israel was more concerned with her comfort than with being a light to the nations around her, just like Christians can often be concerned with their comfort and forgetting the world that's dying around them. Now, that's all for Jonah. I know we could spend a lot more time there, but we got to go on to the next book. But we're going to skip over Micah temporarily. We're going to come back to it and go right into discussing Nahum or Nahum. Because if you didn't know this, Nahum is part two to the story of Jonah. After the Assyrians had repented of their actions, roughly 150 years later, they returned to their wicked ways. And Nahum was called to deliver a message of judgment on a nation that had previously been given the revelation of the true God. The Assyrians with their capital at Nineveh were the ones addressed in this message, and they had heard about the true God through the ministry of Jonah. But since that point in time, they were sinning in spite of the light of that revealed knowledge of God. Now, one aspect of the message of Nahum is what it says about God. Nahum teaches the reader that to believe in God's love is to be sure of his wrath. If God is never angry, he does not love. His anger grows out of his love. Can you look at sin, pride, oppression, and cruelty and not be moved? Then you do not love. God's love always interprets his wrath. So whenever we observe some instance of God's vengeance, we must also remember that it springs from his love. We cannot always make the connection, and we may not be able to explain the connection to ourselves and to others, but there is a connection. God's vengeance proves the depth of his love. And so in chapter 1 in the book of Nahum, we look at God as judge. Because the Lord is holy and hates sin, he must judge those who sin and do not repent. However, he does not rush to judgment because he is slow to anger. As we noted earlier, the people of Nineveh have been given special revelation about the true God through their preaching of Jonah many years before, 150 years before. So their sinning now was being done in light of what they knew to be true. Judgment was therefore deserved and was coming from the Lord, and it was actually slow. God gave them time to change their ways, even them. 
in chapter 2, the judgment is carried out on Nineveh. Nineveh is told to prepare for a ferocious attack that would kill the inhabitants of the city and destroy everything in it. And this devastation is certain because God has pronounced that he is against Nineveh. Wow, you don't ever want to be in a place where God is against you. In chapter 3, the reasons for the judgment are given. Nineveh was guilty of brutality, immorality, and idolatry. Judgment coming to this city was irreversible. There was no hope. God's actions here show the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. You know, the sins of Israel and Judah were essentially no different from the sins of Nineveh. In fact, Israel and Judah may have been far worse because they had so much knowledge of the Lord God. But Israel and Judah were in a covenant relationship with the Lord, and this unconditional covenant guaranteed their future. Though they experienced some terrible disciplines from the hand of God for their evil, the covenant and their future remained intact. Now, for many critics of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament is angry, quick-tempered, and always judging or threatening judgment. And I think a lot of their information comes from the book of Nahum. Those people point out how unlikely Um, unlike the Lord Jesus, that God is in the Old Testament. But such a view of God is absolutely false. The character of God, whether it's discovered in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is really the very opposite. You see, because remember, Nineveh was given 150 years to get their actions right. They knew what was right because of Jonah. So in God's eyes, they had ample time to repent and turn things around. They just chose not to. All right, on to the next book, which is the book of Micah. And we skipped that because we wanted to combine Jonah and Nahum together. So let's go back and talk about Micah. Micah was sent to the southern kingdom to call them back to practical righteousness. In fact, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 best sums up this point well. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This verse reminds us that one of the big lessons from the book is that the test of authority is its motive. If the motive of the leaders is self-service and self glory, then their leadership is corrupt. You know, Micah is a great book because it contrasts imperfect leaders with the perfect leader, who is Jesus. Now, there are three discourses that make up the book of Micah. The first one is in chapters 1 and 2, and it's a word of judgment against the northern kingdom with its capital city of Samaria. Micah informs them that judgment is coming by means of the Assyrians. But Micah is also very upset because what will happen very soon to Samaria is going to happen later to the nation of Judah. In chapter 2, the reasons for Judah's judgment are given, which are basically numerous crimes against fellow citizens. Micah cites that the people lie in their beds at night thinking of evil and then wake up in the morning ready to carry it out. But the people are not the only ones making plans. God is making plans of judgment that he is going to carry out. The next discourse is in chapters 3 through 5. This section describes God as both judge and one who keeps his covenants. Micah tells of the coming judgment... um, on the false prophets who were leading the nation away from God and on the city and the temple. And with all this judgment, however, God is still faithful to his covenant with Israel. Because in chapters 4 and 5, as Micah looks to the future, he declared that God would indeed fulfill his promise and God would indeed bring a Messiah from the nation of Israel. Micah 5 verse 2 is the well-known prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, the final discourse of the book is in chapters 6 through 7. And after Micah reminds the people of all that God has done for them and how he has never failed them, he tells them what God requires of them, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. God wants obedience. He wants love and humility. These things are far more important than sacrifices. And these things were absent in the lives of people. 
this unrighteousness would eventually bring judgment, but God's judgment would not wipe out all the people. The book of Micah closes with another reminder of the Lord's character, that he is merciful and long-suffering and takes no pleasure in judging men. I know I'm glad for that last statement, and I hope you are as well. Our God is such a merciful God, holding back so many times by his mercy the judgment that we rightly deserve. Now, time to move on to the next book, which is the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk was writing, um, he wrote before the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile by Babylon, so right before that. Although there are alone just three small chapters, Habakkuk has some theology about God that's good for us all. You see, because Habakkuk's message weighs the important questions of how God's patience with sin can be related to his holiness. And the dialogue that happens in the book between God and Habakkuk gives us insight into this very matter. And so as the book opens, we find that Habakkuk is deeply concerned about the holiness of God. He was concerned that God's holiness was being compromised by the sin, the violence, and the lawlessness that were being seen everywhere in Judah. It seemed to Habakkuk that God was not lifting a finger to do anything about it. However, God's response to Habakkuk says that just because you can't see me working doesn't mean I'm not working. And how true is that? Once Habakkuk learns that God is going to punish Judah, and this time he's going to do it with the Babylonians, Habakkuk asks asks the question to the Lord, why are you going to use a nation more wicked than Israel to punish Israel? How could God justify this? Wouldn't the nation of Babylon glorify themselves as a result? But God answers Habakkuk by telling him that he would also judge the Babylonians. He was very much aware of their sins and crimes. But all of this theology didn't sit well with Habakkuk. He couldn't make any sense of it. He couldn't understand why God was doing what he was doing. He didn't see the plan. And at first, Habakkuk had been afraid that God was doing too little. But then, now he, he becomes concerned that God was doing too much. It sounds like the prophet was having a hard time trusting in God's plans. Now, the last part of the book, chapter 3, is a prayer in the form of a poem, where God reminds the prophet of how his past dealings with Israel should give him confidence that he can be trusted in the future. Uh, that could not be better stated than with the last few lines of the book verses 17 through 19. It says this, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and are barren, and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the high heights. So at the end of the book, Habakkuk comes to the realization that, you know what? God's in control. He's sovereign. I simply need to rest and trust in that fact. All right, the next book is Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is similar to the book of Joel because of its focus on the phrase, Day of the Lord. Now, Joel helped to understand that the Day of the Lord was a time of God's judgment, and that judgment could be during the prophet's lifetime, or that judgment could be still yet future. Whenever we find the phrase, Day of the Lord, it always suggests a contrast with the Day of Man. The Day of Man is any day when man appears to be in control of human affairs. It's a day of God's patience. In contrast is the day of the Lord. This is any day when God is clearly, and he demonstrates it so, that he is in control of human affairs. Zephaniah used the term day of the Lord more than any other prophet. And so as we read through Zephaniah, you can get a better understanding of what's being referenced as it relates to the day of the Lord. 
Now, Zephaniah was a contemporary of Habakkuk, and he prophesied before the exile to Babylon. Therefore, it makes sense that the first section of Zephaniah, chapters 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is a prophecy that deals with the coming judgment on the southern kingdom, that is, their exile to Babylon. The priests, the princes, and the people had knowingly involved themselves in the worship of idols, turning willfully away from the Lord. The day that the exile begun was truly a day of the Lord because he directly stepped into history and allowed the Babylonians to take Israel into captivity. The prophet had tires, all the prophets really, had tirelessly preached this message, but the day finally arrives. Now, in the second part of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verses 4 through, 7, through 15, uh, the focus is on coming judgment for foreign nations. Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, and Assyria are all targeted. These nations are singled out because of their treatment of God's people. This would also be a day of the Lord in which God would step in and judge these nations. The third part of Zephaniah is chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and it focuses on judgment that would come on God's chosen people, specifically Jerusalem, because this city had been stubborn and rebellious. Her leaders are seen as greedy, unholy, treacherous, and wicked because she has not responded positively to God's judgment on other nations around her. She, too, will be judged as a result. Now, the last section of Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, looks forward to a future day of the Lord, when the Messiah will establish his role on earth after the second coming. After that initial day of judgment, a time of salvation and blessing will ensue as the millennial kingdom on earth begins. And so this last section is a wonderful reminder that in the future, the Lord will make all things right for his people. The shame of Israel will be replaced with honor and praise because God will be faithful to his promises. Now, in the beginning, I told you this podcast was going to be long, and instead of trying to sandwich and cram everything together in one podcast, I'm going to stop here. And so we're going to label this podcast Week 39A. So that would cover Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. And then we'll start a new podcast called Week 39B, and Week 39B will be Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So after you finish listening to this podcast, Week 39A, Go over and click on 39B, and we'll continue talking through the reading for the week.